Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains descriptions of gun violence and infant mortality that some people may find offensive or upsetting. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Celia Cooney couldn't sleep. It wasn't just that she was eight months pregnant, unable to get comfortable on the lumpy bed, or that her husband, Ed, was snoring beside her. It was the feeling of doom that she couldn't shake. It was as if there were a clock inside of her ticking, calling out each second until they were caught. It was inevitable. Every time she thought of the future, she felt piercing fear. Living like this was unbearable. Trapped in their room, completely broke, too afraid to leave, their descriptions all over the news. And any day now, a baby coming. She couldn't take it much longer. Outside on the stairs, she thought she heard a creaking floorboard, a footstep. She sat up and reached for Ed's 38 caliber on the floor beside her. Celia grabbed it, took off the safety, and aimed it shakily at the door. She waited, ready to shoot. But it was another false alarm. She lay back on her side, her heart racing. Inside of her, the baby kicked. Whatever happened to Celia Cooney, whatever waited for her on the other side of the door, she was going to be a mother. And that was a fate she couldn't run away from. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? 
Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we met Celia Cooney, a young wife who wanted a better life for her family. So along with her husband, Ed Cooney, Celia became a robber. They held up 10 stores across Brooklyn in the winter of 1924 and became celebrities in the process. The press called her the bobbed-haired bandit, and the NYPD called her public enemy number one. This week, we'll look at the Cooney's last few robberies, the terrible loss they suffered in hiding, and the arrest and trial that made Celia a media sensation. By early February of 1924, Brooklyn had two bona fide outlaws, 20-year-old Celia Cooney and her 25-year-old husband, Ed. The two had held up seven stores since early January and showed no sign of stopping. Week after week, the New York papers covered each robbery on the front page. They loved the stylish couple that somehow managed to never get caught. The police, however, were less amused. Every effort they made to arrest the bobbed-haired bandit and her partner was a disaster. The first woman they arrested, Helen Quigley, who they thought was the bobbed-haired bandit, turned out to be completely innocent. So on February 9, 1924, Police Commissioner Richard Enright stepped up his tactics. He sent hundreds of undercover cops onto the streets of Brooklyn, waiting for Celia and Ed to strike. The couple didn't go out that night, but another female bandit held up a chain store. The bobbed-haired bandit had inspired a copycat. The police were infuriated. Meanwhile, Celia and Ed laid low in their apartment. The New York tabloids lamented. They feared that the bobbed-haired bandit had hung up her pistol for good and that their favorite front-page saga was over too soon. Then, on Saturday, February 23, 1924, two weeks after their last stick-up, Celia and Ed were back in business. This time, they hit the James Butler grocery store. When Celia got there just before closing time at 11 p.m., only six people were inside, a manager, two clerks, and three customers. Celia walked inside. Nobody noticed the petite brunette in a black fur hat and sealskin coat until she yelled, Up, everybody! Throw them up! She herded the employees and customers to the back while Ed came in and rifled through the cash register. Then they jumped into their Ford sedan and disappeared. Celia never wrote about this particular holdup herself, but she didn't need to. 
Almost every New York paper covered it. In their book, The Bobbed-Haired Bandit, Stephen Duncombe and Andrew Matson described the press as ecstatic. They called her a female Jesse James, citing her new two-gun approach. The headline proclaimed, Bandit Comes Back After Rest. It must have been heady stuff for Celia Cooney. However, the holdup itself wasn't very lucrative. The whole venture only netted Ed and Celia $60, about $870 today. But that didn't seem to matter. Making money had ceased to be the point. Now Celia was robbing for the thrill and the publicity. Before I continue with Celia's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for this episode. By this point, Celia was likely suffering from an addiction to fame, but her narcissistic tendencies may have contributed to an underlying psychological condition that is linked to criminal behavior. In 2019, a study published in Frontiers in Psychology looked at the factors that contribute to aggression in women. They compared a group of incarcerated women with ones who had not committed any crimes. In both groups, researchers found that higher narcissistic personality traits corresponded with a higher occurrence of aggression. Other factors that have a positive correlation with aggression include lower job competence, lower age, and a history of child maltreatment. Celia's life checked all the boxes. Her spotty job history, young age, and traumatic childhood meant that she was a prime candidate for aggressive behavior and, in turn, criminal behavior. After the latest holdup, the police formed a Bob Squad. Commissioner Enright put eight of his best detectives on the case to capture the bobbed-haired bandit. Their first task? Going through more than 100 letters that had come in with tips about Celia's identity. Then, just after midnight on Wednesday, March 5, 1924, a man was robbed at gunpoint on a street in Crown Heights. There were no witnesses, but the man named the bobbed-haired bandit and her husband as his assailants. In response, Commissioner Enright ordered half the Brooklyn police force out onto the street. 250 cops had orders to shoot and kill the bobbed-haired bandit on sight. But that didn't bother Celia and Ed Cooney. They still went out on the 5th looking for a holdup. Celia later wrote, Things were going so good that it seems we took chances just for the fun of it. That night, they drove through Brooklyn, scouting out locations, when they turned onto Sumner Avenue. The street was jumping. People were everywhere. They spotted the Sam Weiss drugstore. Small, bright, and seemingly empty. The perfect target. But when they saw what was across the street, they balked. It was the 13th Regiment Armory of the New York State National Guard. Through the open windows of the building, they could hear policemen marching and doing drills, 150 of them. Celia and Ed drove on, scared. But then they reconsidered the challenge. If they could pull off a robbery within spitting distance of 100 cops, the papers would never get over it. They went back to the drugstore. 
Tonight, Celia had on fake blonde curls under her usual hat. They gave her confidence as she walked into the store. She asked the owner for a tube of tooth powder. Then she pulled out two guns, the 25 caliber pistol from her left pocket and a 38 caliber from her right. The owner, Sam Weiss, put his hands up right away and came out from behind the counter. But he wasn't Celia's biggest problem. The store had two phone booths, and in each sat a young woman talking. Celia disliked holding up women. They could be unpredictable, and more often than not, they weren't cowed by the sight of a gun. These girls, however, seemed oblivious to the fact that a robbery was taking place. Celia approached the booths with a pit in her stomach, then rapped on the glass with her gun. The first girl just stared, starstruck. As she came out of the booth, she tried asking Celia if she were the bobbed-haired bandit. Celia cut her off and told her to go to the back of the store. In the next booth, the girl took one look at Celia and fainted, then slumped to the floor. She eventually came to and crawled out, crying. As Celia herded them both to the back, two more men walked into the store. Customers. She waved her gun at them and got them into line. But just when she thought she had everyone finally sorted, a woman appeared from a hidden staircase. It was the druggist's wife. It was chaotic. She'd never had to deal with so many people and with so many interruptions. Even Ed was thrown. He managed to concentrate long enough to rifle through the register and a small safe. Celia covered the group with her guns as they backed out of the exit. Finally, they jumped in their car just minutes before a stream of cops from the armory entered the drugstore. The robbery was a public relations triumph. The papers loved that Celia and Ed had been brazen enough to hold up a store across from the armory. But the take had been minimal, only $31, less than $500 today. Enough for a small shopping spree, but not enough to maintain their new lifestyle. Also, Brooklyn was a small town. This was their ninth robbery. Too many people had seen them by now. Ed's plan of stealing enough money to prepare for their child, then going back to their old life, was just unrealistic. They would never be able to go back to their old life. After the Sam Weiss robbery, Celia and Ed went into hiding. They needed to get out of Brooklyn. They needed a fresh start. But both of those things required money they began to plot their last robbery. This time, they'd make sure the haul would be worth their while. It would take careful planning and a lot of nerve. But Celia was scared. The police had been the butt of jokes for far too long. They were angry. And when they finally did catch up to the bobbed-haired bandit, that anger was likely to boil over into violence. Coming up, Celia and Ed try to pull off one last heist and flee Brooklyn without getting caught. Now, back to the story. By March of 1924, 
20-year-old Celia Cooney and her 25-year-old husband, Ed, had robbed nine stores and, in the process, exposed themselves to at least a couple dozen witnesses. They needed to get out of Brooklyn. Celia was due to give birth in May, and the couple needed a fresh start. But they didn't have a dime to their name. Even after nine holdups, they were still as broke as ever, and even deeper in debt. Their only shot at survival was one last stick-up. But it couldn't be any old grocery store. It would have to be a sure thing and go off without a hitch. Ed knew just who to target. The payroll office of the National Biscuit Company, now known as Nabisco. Ed had grown up a stone's throw from the office and had seen right into it from his mother's apartment. He knew that once a month, on payday, cash was out in the open, stacked on a desk, ready to be slipped into envelopes for employees. The money would be theirs for the taking if they played their cards right. Then they'd take a steamship down to Jacksonville, Florida. There, they'd have their baby and start a new life. All of this would be behind them. The couple arranged to leave Brooklyn as discreetly as possible. They told their landlady that they were going out of town, had their furniture put in storage, and then took a taxi into Manhattan. They checked into a hotel under an assumed name. Celia waited anxiously in the lobby. She couldn't wait to get to the privacy of their room. Her feisty, devil-may-care attitude had disappeared. She was a month or so away from giving birth and just wanted to get out of town. For this last holdup, Ed would be in charge, and that was fine with her. On the morning of the robbery, Celia wore the same pink hat she'd worn to her very first holdup on January 5th, as well as the sealskin coat, and this time, a black veil. A chauffeur named Arthur West took them back over the bridge to Brooklyn. He didn't suspect a thing. Once they entered a quiet stretch of Prospect Park, Ed asked him to pull over. Then Ed got out of the back seat, walked up to the front, and dug his gun into the driver's ribs. He forced Arthur into the back seat and onto the floor of the limo. Celia tied Arthur's wrists with picture wire. It wasn't easy, but the driver was too frightened not to comply. Ed got behind the wheel and drove the rest of the way to the biscuit company. In the back seat, Celia kept watch over the man on the floor. She even wedged her foot against his neck and kept it there, laughing to herself. When they got to the payroll office, Celia went in first. She tried to ignore the 20 or so people working inside. The office was busy. Celia asked one of the clerks to fetch a cashier. Behind the bars of a caged area, she could see the safe. The door was wide open. All she needed to do was get all the cashiers and employees together in one group, prop the cage door open, and let Ed rifle through the safe for whatever he wanted. It wouldn't take long, maybe a couple of minutes tops. The cashier that came out to speak to her was named Nathan Mazzo. Celia handed him an envelope on which she'd scribbled a few words. But when he opened it, 
Inside was nothing but a blank piece of paper. It didn't make sense. He looked up at Celia, confused, but by then, she had a 38 caliber pointed at his face. Nathan Mazo looked past her, at Ed in the doorway, waving two more guns. Women screamed. The men raised their hands. In the commotion, a clerk tried to shut the door to the safe, but Celia waved at him with her gun. He left it open. Then she herded all the workers into a smaller side room. As they passed by her in a line to enter, Nathan Mazo grabbed Celia by the arm, trying to wrestle the gun from her grip. Celia stumbled and fell. Ed, startled, fired his gun. Mazo made a flying leap into the smaller room. Bullets tore right through the door as someone slammed it shut. Then all was quiet. Ed and Celia stared at the door, marked with two bullet holes. The silence on the other side was eerie. They were sure they'd killed Mazo. Ed pulled Celia to her feet, and the two of them made their way out of the office. Just a few steps away was the open safe. Nearly $8,000 lay inside, ripe for the taking. But neither of them noticed or cared. Soon the police would be there. They needed to escape. They got back into the limo, drove for a few blocks, then abandoned it and caught a cab back across the Brooklyn Bridge. They changed taxis one more time, then made it to their steamship to Jacksonville. Once they checked into their tiny stateroom, they collapsed. That's when Celia realized something. She'd lost her address book. She'd probably left it in one of the cabs on the way to the boat. If the police found it, they would have a record of her handwriting, and it would match the writing on the envelope that she'd handed Nathan Mazo. But she couldn't think about that right now. All she and Ed could do was hide. They stayed in their stateroom for the entire three-day trip to Florida. When they docked in Jacksonville on April 3rd and 4th, 1924, Celia and Ed were exhausted. They were also seriously broke. They may have escaped Brooklyn, but they had less than $50 between them. They rented the cheapest room they could find, which also happened to be a block away from the police department. Ed intended to look for a job at a car repair shop, but never did. Celia later claimed that this was because of newspaper reports about their last holdup. Someone at the biscuit company recognized Ed as a local mechanic. If he looked for work at a garage, the police might connect the dots. With no money, no plan, and no prospects, their lives in Florida were over before they'd even begun. Celia hid in her room for an entire week, waiting for someone to come to their door and tell them they were wanted for murder. As she wrote later, it was plain hell I wouldn't wish on a dog. Celia stared out the window at the bright Florida sunshine. Trapped indoors, a thousand miles from home, she wished she could undo things. Whatever justice lay in store for them, this feeling of regret and shame had to be worse. A baby was coming, 
a baby she'd wanted so badly to take care of. After everything they'd been through, they could barely afford to buy baby clothes. She had just wanted to be a good mother. Now she was a fugitive. The irony wasn't lost on her. On the night of April 10, 1924, Celia began to feel sick. She was too scared for Ed to get a doctor, but he insisted. The doctor examined Celia and told her they needed to go to the hospital immediately. The baby was coming early. Celia's early labor may not have just been caused by extreme stress. Her traumatic childhood may have also played a part. A 2018 study published in the Journal of Obstetric, Gynecological, and Neonatal Nursing found that pregnant women with a childhood of trauma and abuse may have a particular kind of post-traumatic stress disorder that may put them at risk for early labor. Dissociative post-traumatic stress syndrome, or PTSD-D, involves episodes of disconnection from reality, or blanking out. It's a way to deal with chronic abuse or trauma suffered in the past. Celia exhibited symptoms of dissociation at the start of her robbing career. She wrote that she felt separate from herself at certain moments, like another version of herself had suddenly left her body. The study found that pregnant women who show symptoms of PTSD-D had elevated levels of the stress hormone cortisol. Elevated cortisol can result in preterm birth. Celia's traumatic childhood meant that she wanted to give her baby a better life, but it also meant that her pregnancy carried a higher risk of complications. Celia's baby would be born affected by Celia's own difficult childhood. On April 10, 1924, 20-year-old Celia Cooney gave birth to a little girl. They named her Catherine. As a preterm infant, the baby needed extra care and a doctor's attention, but the hospital knew that Celia and Ed didn't have enough money to pay their bills. Before the day was out, the two were on the street, their underweight, sickly baby in Celia's arms. On top of it all, they had to find another place to live. Their landlady wanted rent a week in advance, and they couldn't pay it. Ed found them another cheap room, and they moved in that day. Celia had been through a difficult birth, and now she couldn't produce enough milk. Her baby struggled to get nourishment. Without proper medical care and nourishment, the odds of her survival were slim. Then, on April 12th, two-day-old Catherine Cooney died. Celia and Ed were devastated. They agonized over the fact that they hadn't been able to baptize their little girl. They found an undertaker who would bury their baby on credit and arranged for a small ceremony. At the cemetery, the Coonies and the undertaker were the only attendees. They watched her little coffin go into the ground. Celia and Ed went back into hiding, shattered. Neither of them cared much about living anymore. They even spoke about suicide. 
The day after the burial of their baby, on April 15th, the NYPD published their names in an all-points bulletin. It hit every media outlet up and down the East Coast. The police had finally figured out who they were. The bobbed-haired bandit was no longer a mystery. Reports of a suddenly affluent Brooklyn mechanic and his wife had already reached the police, but they didn't make sense until the people the Coonies had seen during their last days in New York came forward. Their last landlady confirmed the Coonies had left their apartment the same day that a desk clerk reported that a couple who resembled the Coonies checked into a hotel in Midtown. And the kicker? The writing in the notebook Celia left in a taxi cab matched the writing on the envelope Celia had handed Nabisco cashier Nathan Mazzo. Finally, the Bob Squad had their mystery couple, Celia and Ed Cooney. But no one knew their whereabouts. Suspecting that the Coonies had left town, the police monitored Ed's mother's mail. On April 19th, they intercepted a letter. Ed listed their first apartment in Jacksonville as his return address. Detectives William Casey and Frank Gray boarded the express train to Florida. When they arrived in Jacksonville on April 20th, they managed to find the undertaker that had buried baby Catherine. He gave the detectives the Coonies' current address. Just after midnight on Tuesday, April 21st, a group of police cars surrounded the ramshackle rooming house. Inside the apartment, the Coonies lay in bed, half asleep. Then Celia heard a dog bark. The cops were here. It was time. Coming up, Celia and Ed surrender to police and return to New York, where they discover they're more famous than ever before. Now, back to the story. By the time the cops arrived to arrest them on Tuesday, April 21, 1924, 20-year-old Celia and 25-year-old Ed Cooney had been to hell and back. They'd lost their two-day-old baby, who was the reason they'd turned to crime in the first place. They were flat broke, unable to get a job. They'd even talked about suicide. But when the police began busting down the door of their one-room Florida apartment, Celia's fighting spirit came back. She wanted to live. The door finally came off its hinges. Before the cops could shoot them, Celia grabbed two of the guns and aimed them at herself. Then she stepped in front of Ed, protecting him with her own small frame. She wanted the cops to know that she was no threat. Ed just stood there, defenseless, a broken man, ready to surrender. As Celia later wrote, any man could have looked at him and seen that he was through. The police brought the Coonies to the Jacksonville police station. The couple was so worn down from three weeks of worry that they confessed to all the robberies, with no lawyer in sight. 
The cops were thrilled, but they needed to know who had shot the Nabisco cashier, Nathan Mazzo. His wounds had been quite less severe than the papers had initially reported. He would live. But he was still the victim of a gunshot. Celia jumped in. She did it. She shot the man. But Ed wouldn't let her take the blame. He confessed to the shooting. While it may have seemed reckless for Celia to take the blame for Ed's actions, studies have shown that couples who sacrifice for one another may have longer and better marriages. A 2006 study by Scott Stanley and Sarah Witten found that one of the reasons sacrifice is a powerful predictor of marital satisfaction is that it has a high signal-to-noise ratio. In other words, when one partner chooses to put the interests of the other ahead of their own, that action has a tendency to stand out apart from many other positive behaviors that may be taken for granted. For all of Celia's mood swings and narcissistic tendencies, her love for her husband never wavered. Her actions the night of their arrest only proved this. Celia seemed to know that she was stronger than Ed and that he needed her protection. After making their confessions, the Coonies left Jacksonville the next day on the 12 o'clock train. It would take 27 hours to reach New York. Even though she was handcuffed, Celia began to relax. Being in custody was a lot better than being trapped in a single room. On the train, she enjoyed herself. She was safe, served regular meals, and had the full attention of two detectives. She even played hearts with them. It was fun. But she was in for an even more pleasant surprise. When the train made its local stops, Celia noticed crowds at the platform. As they waved at her in the window, it dawned on her. The crowds were there to see her. The arrest of the bobbed-haired bandit was national news. So was the time and departure of the Cooney's train. They were the subject of fascination for every looky-loo who lived near the train tracks. They were also sitting ducks for eager reporters. Some had gotten on the train in Jacksonville. Others boarded as it made stops up the East Coast. Eventually, Celia granted interviews. Pretty soon, she was back to her old self, mouthy, feisty, and happy as the center of attention. By the time the train got to Penn Station on April 22, 1924, a crowd of a thousand or more was waiting for them. The mob was so deep that one paper claimed it took the police 10 minutes to clear a path for the Coonies to exit the train. As Celia stepped off the train in handcuffs, flashbulbs popped and motion picture cameras cranked. Ironically, President Calvin Coolidge had left Penn Station just minutes before, but he had hardly drawn 500 well-wishers. Celia was officially more famous than the president. The detectives pushed Celia and Ed through the crowd, struggling to get them to a waiting car. But before they could make it to the vehicle, a defense lawyer named Sam Leibowitz emerged from the masses, yelling for the Cooney's release. 
he waved two pieces of paper, writs of habeas corpus signed by a state Supreme Court judge. He'd argued that the Coonies were being held illegally because they had been arrested without a warrant. But the cops were too busy trying to get the Coonies into a car and down to court. Leibowitz followed and jumped in the car with them. When they got to the courthouse and appeared in front of the judge, Leibowitz tried to argue on behalf of his clients. The judge stopped him. He asked the Coonies if they wanted Leibowitz to act as their attorney. Celia was torn. The cops had told them that their sentence would be lighter if they didn't have a lawyer and if they pled guilty to all charges. Celia shook her head. They didn't want counsel. The judge dismissed the writs of habeas corpus. Then he sent the couple to the assistant district attorney's office in Brooklyn to be questioned about their crimes. But the ADA didn't get their chance. Before he could even muster up a decent interrogation, Celia confessed to all ten jobs. Then they participated in a lineup for all of their victims. Each identified the Coonies as their assailants. Later the next day, on April 23rd, the Coonies pled guilty to all of their indictments. The Coonies were remanded to separate quarters at the Raymond Street Jail to await sentencing. But Celia's fame had reached its peak. Locked up in jail, reporters and photographers still clamored for interviews, and Celia played her fame for all it was worth, holding out for more and more money. Eventually, her efforts paid off. William Randolph Hearst paid her $1,000, $15,000 today, for the exclusive rights to her story. By April 25th, she was already writing it. Her paycheck was more than all the money that she and Ed had made on their holdups. Also on April 25th, Celia was allowed to have a private moment with Ed. She rushed into his arms, and they whispered to each other in private. Evidently, Celia had begun to wonder about their sentencing. She was skeptical that they'd done the right thing by dismissing their lawyer. Soon after she and Ed parted, Celia sent word to Sam Leibowitz. She wanted him to represent them, and she no longer wanted to plead guilty. The next day, on April 26th, word went out that Leibowitz was going to enter a temporary insanity plea on Celia's behalf. It made sense. Many journalists had weighed in on Celia's mental stability since their arrest. Opinion was divided. Was she sane? And if she had been mentally compromised, what part had her pregnancy played? But no matter how much she begged, Celia was unable to get Ed to change his plea. Judge Martin barely batted an eye, and to cover his bases, he put together a group of psychologists called a lunacy board to inspect both of the Coonies. On April 29th, Celia and Ed returned to the courthouse. Judge Martin brought them upstairs to speak to them privately in his chambers. Leibowitz wasn't invited. Hours passed. Reporters waited anxiously in the courtroom, openly wondering what was going on. 
Finally, the Coonies came out. Judge Martin had convinced Celia to drop her defense. She would plead guilty once again. Celia's decision not to fight turned public opinion against her. Now that she seemed ready for prison, she was no longer the cocky outlaw. She was a contrite sinner. Judge Martin found himself with the press on his side. They wanted to see the bobbed-haired bandit pay for her crimes, big time. On the morning of Tuesday, May 6, 1924, the Coonies were sentenced in Kings County Court. Judge Martin gave them each the maximum, 10 to 20 years. Their guilty confessions had worked against them. Despite Celia's requests, they were sent to separate prisons, 20-year-old Celia to Auburn in upstate New York and 25-year-old Ed to Sing Sing. Celia didn't crumble in public, but inside she was floored. She could handle the maximum sentence, but leaving Ed was a terrible blow. From the beginning, the Coonies had been a team. Until their arrest, it seemed as if they would never spend a night apart. Now, their crime was exacting the ultimate punishment, separation. Celia openly cried until her departure for Auburn. The reality of her future was hitting her. The hardest part was saying goodbye to Ed. He cried. She told him that they were just going to have to make the best of it. It was an emotional scene. Even the warden had to look away. As Celia walked out of the room, she looked over her shoulder at Ed and gave him one last smile. She'd asked for all of the money she'd earned from writing her story to be held for Ed when he got out of prison. When she left to get on the train for the trip upstate to Auburn Penitentiary, there were hardly any people waiting to see her off. The sensation of the bobbed-haired bandit was over. Prison life was a hard adjustment, but Celia managed. She was apparently a model inmate. Celia worked in the prison laundry and later as the secretary to the head warden. She became so proficient at typing and shorthand that she began teaching secretarial skills to the other female inmates. A month in, she was granted a wonderful surprise. Ed was transferred from Sing Sing to Auburn. It's unclear how, but Celia was overjoyed. But Ed's stay there was short-lived. While on work duty, his hand was crushed in a license plate machine. Three of his fingers needed to be removed. After the operation, infection set in. Eventually, half his arm was amputated. Then, as he was recovering, he caught tuberculosis and had to be transferred to a medical prison. Ed never came back to Auburn. Celia was devastated, but the Coonies wrote to each other every other week. 27-year-old Celia and 31-year-old Ed were finally released from prison in October of 1931, almost seven and a half years after their sentencing. She and Ed both knew that an early release was possible for good behavior. It turned out that their release coincided with a windfall. 
1931, Ed won a negligence suit against New York State for the loss of his hand. He was awarded $12,000, $174,000 today. Finally, it was enough for the Coonies to start fresh. They moved to Long Island, had two sons, and enjoyed their suburban life after all. But it wouldn't last long. After less than five years together, Ed passed away from a recurrence of tuberculosis in 1936. He was 37 years old. The cruelty wasn't lost on Celia. Prison had taken Ed from her once. Now, the tragedy he suffered there and its lasting effects had taken him away forever. Celia Cooney was left to raise their two boys on her own, and her past was largely put to rest. Her sons never knew her past persona. They remembered Celia as a good mother, even when she was struggling financially. Her most notable quality in their mind was honesty. One day, when she was in the throes of Alzheimer's disease, she told one of her sons that she'd been the bobbed-haired bandit. He didn't have any idea what she was talking about. It was only after her death in July of 1992, at the age of 88, that they realized that at one time she had drawn a bigger crowd than the president. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Celia Cooney, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Bobbed-Haired Bandit, a true story of crime and celebrity in 1920s New York by Stephen Duncombe and Andrew Matson, to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joanna Philbin, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>